This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. I want to welcome you to the library. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to our panel members and to the Arab Student Union for putting this event together. Um, I just want to make a couple of quick reminders. Uh, you know, the reason that the library does these kind of events, just like the reasons that we have different items on our shelves or our online resources, is that it's our goal to find and bring information to our students on a range of topics. Um, our goal is to promote understanding, and today's event is to promote understanding. And I want to make a distinction, right? Our goal isn't always to promote agreement. So it's okay to disagree, and it's okay to ask challenging questions. We hope that you do that. We hope that everyone does that, though, in respectful ways. Matt is our moderator, and he will con call on people um, who may have questions, and he will indicate when it's time to ask questions of our panel members. So thank you again to everyone for their time. Thank you all for coming, um, and I will turn it over to Matt. Have a, have a great afternoon. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank, thank you, Troy. Um, good afternoon, and welcome to the Gaza uh, attack one year later humanitarian crisis. My name is Matthew Swice. I am the ASU Arab Student Union Club Advisor uh, and also a full-time staff member here at Moraine Valley Community College. Uh, the Arab Student Union is one of the oldest clubs here and it has always aimed to educate the community on the Middle East and also the Arab culture. Um, today it's specifically aims to shed some light on the events that took place in Gaza. Since 2006, Gaza has been sealed from the outside world and it has been starving since then. Uh, from December 27th to January 13th, Gaza was disproportionately attacked by Israel by air, sea, and land, spreading destruction on a largely unarmed, starved, and innocent population, which led to over 1,300 Palestinians massacred, 400,000 without running water, and 4,000 homes destroyed. This panel aims to further educate the public, mourn the dead, and express solidarity with those that survived. First, I would like to go ahead and introduce the uh, panelists and the speakers that came today. Um, our first is uh, Rabbi Branch Rosen, a spiritual leader. Uh, he's the, the Jewish Reconstruction Congregation since 1998. Welcome. Um, he is a longtime activist for peace, social justice, and human rights. He traveled on delegations to such countries as Nigeria, Rwanda, Uganda, Russia, and most recently an interfaith peace delegation to Iran. Our second speaker is the very reverend Father Nicholas Dahdal, uh, born in Jerusalem. He is uh, currently the pastor of St. George Church in Cicero, Illinois since 1986. Welcome, Father. He has worked tirelessly to raise awareness of the conflicts in the Middle East, spoke numerous of time on radio TV, and TV stations, uh, wrote many magazines, magazine articles uh, seeking justice for the oppressed. Our final speaker is Rafiq Jabber, uh, born in Ramallah, uh, and uh, lived in Chicago since 1974. Welcome, uh, Rafiq. He is the past president of the Mosque Foundation of Chicago, board member in Spartan Education, founder of the United Muslim American Association, and finally co-founder for the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Thank you for all attending. And uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to have start with Rabbi, and we're going to have 15 minutes for each person to go ahead and uh, address uh, the uh, situation. Please. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, and thank you for for having me. I, I just want to say, before I begin, uh, that I'm especially appreciative uh, to the uh, your Arab student group for inviting an interfaith uh, panel. I think it's, it says a great deal that you reached out to the Jewish community and uh, thought it important to have a Jewish voice on this panel. And uh, I must say, I feel... Uh, a a fair weight on my shoulders uh, whenever I, uh, it's not to say I don't like to speak on behalf of the entire Jewish people, uh, but uh, I, I want to underline that this is, I'm simply giving you one American Jewish perspective on an issue that I consider to be uh, a critical issue, uh, one of the most critical uh, human rights issues of our time and certainly one that I am uh, working very hard to put on the, the radar screen of the American Jewish community. So thank you, for, thank you for having me and thank you for sponsoring this program, which I think is enormously important. As I thought about how I would, uh, how I would speak to you and what I would say to you, it seemed to me that I, I could, of course, hold forth on many aspects of the situation in Gaza. There are probably many of you here who could do just as good a job uh, as I, and what, the, what I have uniquely to contribute, I think, is really an American Jewish perspective. So I'd like to speak to you uh, as a rabbi who works in the Chicagoland area, of a rabbi of a congregation in Evanston, uh, but also as uh, an American Jew and as an activist for human, for human rights, both within the Jewish community and, and the broader, uh, in the broader community. And I think maybe by just sharing a little bit of my own personal journey and struggle on this issue, uh, it might be able to shed a little bit of um, light uh, on, the, on some of the, the larger issues. And, of course, I'd be very interested in, in unpacking anything I have to say uh, with you later during the conversation, during the question and answer. So just by way of introduction, uh, I've lived in, this, uh, in the Chicagoland area in Evanston since 98, as the introduction uh, indicated. I'm originally from Los Angeles. Uh, I am a product of you know, middle-class American Jewish community and uh, raised with uh, many of the assumptions that uh, that community holds vis-a-vis uh, -vis all kinds of things and certainly vis-a-vis -vis Israel. I grew up with a strong connection to Israel. Uh, I have family there. I visited there uh, first when I was uh, eight or nine years old. I've been, I lived there for a few years when I took time off from college, and I've been there probably more times at this point than I can, than I can count. Uh, I think for many, many American Jews, as many Jews around the world, Israel is uh, a very important part of their Jewish identity. Uh, but it's not to say it's not a complicated part of their Jewish identity. Uh, and I will say that increasingly, uh, over the last several years, there have been voices in the back of my head that were raising troubling questions about uh, Israel-Palestine, about the uh, Israel-Palestinian conflict. And like many, uh, many in our community, I, I did a fairly, a fairly decent job of keeping those voices quiet, uh, avoiding those voices, avoiding... Uh, uh, engaging with those voices. And usually the way uh, I do it, the way many of us uh, do it in my community, is to say, well, it's complicated. You know, well, you know, it's, you know, whenever we would be troubled by actions that Israel might take, whether it's vis-a-vis uh, uh, you know, -vis the occupation, whether it's vis-a-vis -vis the war in Lebanon, what have you, there would be this initial kind of revulsion, uh, and then that little voice saying, well, however... There's the other side. Well, we need to be balanced. Well, well, well. And um, what has grown difficult for me to accept is that, like many American uh, Jews, uh, I tend to be on the liberal end of the political spectrum. I tend to be unabashed about sta uh, standing up against oppression, uh, standing up for human rights. Uh, and that's not all that complicated, <laughs> really. Uh, when it comes right down to it, of course, everything is complicated, of course. You know, but, uh, but there's nothing at the, at the root, there's nothing really complicated about oppression. And I think for many of us, uh, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, uh, we are unable to raise our voices quite in the same way uh, as we do in any other uh, myriad of issues, human rights issues around the world. And I can talk more about why that might be if, if people are interested in, in discussing that a little bit. But I mention this by way of introduction because uh, little by little, 
um, those voices began to I began to challenge those voices and I can I can offer certain turning points um, I think um, really spending time in the West Bank uh, and visiting with Palestinian families and uh, going to Hebron uh, in particular which was uh, an experience that I, I will never forget and really facing some of the most troubling aspects the most deeply toxic aspects of the occupation head-on and uh, stepping outside of my Jewish comfort zone and 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 allowing myself to engage with uh, Palestinians in particular and to hear their stories and to uh, challenge my place in that narrative uh, began to chip away at that voice or it began to respond to the voice uh, the 2006 uh, military assault against Lebanon began to um, uh, for me was another turning point but I will say that almost a year ago today that was really the breaking point and I remember very vividly uh, hearing the initial news of Israel's military assault against Gaza, and um, I just didn't hear the voice anymore. It was just, to me, it was just pure and simple and outrage. And uh, I couldn't rationalize it. I couldn't do that dance anymore like many of us in my community do. And I sat down, I write a blog, and... Um, uh, I sat down as soon as I heard the news of the initial assault, air assault in which uh, um, hundred, you know, the uh, uh, some uh, policemen who were showing up for conscription, hundreds of people were killed at the initial assault, in addition to other civilians as well. And I wrote a, a blog post in which I said, "This can't be excused. Um, we can't explain this away. Uh, this is an outrage." Uh, squeezing the life out of Gaza won't make anyone more secure bombing the living hell out of them won't make anyone more secure and there now I've said it and um, f from that point on uh, for me in my own community I would say all hell broke loose <laughs> uh, but it also but in I would say in a very in a, in a good way uh, not in, an, in a, a non-painful way but in an important way uh, I tried, I, I realized that once I wrote that, there, I got a deluge of emails and letters and respondings on my, on my blog, respondents to my blog from Jews uh, saying, thank you so much for saying this. Uh, I've been waiting for, uh, I've felt this way, I felt I was alone in the Jewish community, and it means a great deal for me to have a rabbi say these things. I heard from many rabbis in the community who said, I really agree with what you said. I wish I could say it out loud as well. Uh, I tried to get a, a public statement condemning the war, uh, uh, a rabbinic statement, and we tried uh, to to rally uh, a rabbinic voice to counteract the uh, what I would say sort of the monolithic establishment Jewish voice, which was supporting Israel's actions. And uh, unfortunately, we were not able to do it. Uh, we were not able. We were not able to uh, to reach to express the widest possible uh, voice of of uh, the rabbinic community, and that was devastating to me, frankly. Um, but what I realized was that I think in our community we're slowly but surely moving in this direction. Not everyone is there yet, uh, but I think um, certainly on a grassroots level, what was so encouraging to me was that uh, there are many in the Jewish community who are who have those same vo who are trying to challenge those same voices in their heads and are looking to uh, engage in the Israel-Palestine issue in a, in a fundamentally different way. Uh, since that time, uh, I have engaged in a uh, conversation within my own con congregation. I've continued to write pretty pointed pieces on my blog, which. Um, has caused me a fair amount of infamy, I guess, in my own uh, in the in the Chicago Jewish, you know, the established Jewish community. But I've, in a, in, in a sense, attracted many, many more people who had felt alienated from that community, who, who want to stand up as Jews, who want to be part of the Jewish community, but because of the Israel-Palestine issue, have felt kept at bay, felt unwelcome. So. That is where I am now. Um, the most encouraging thing that 
from my point of view is that uh, in June, uh, a rabbinic colleague of mine, a um, rabbi named Brian Walt, who lives in New England, and I began a, an initiative called Tani Tzedek, which uh, means Fast for Justice. We call it the Jewish Fast for Gaza. And once a month, we are sponsoring a sunrise to sundown fast uh, with four essential goals to uh, have an immediate lifting of the uh, the blockade in Gaza, uh, to uh, allow humanitarian goods and services and development resources into Gaza uh, for uh, Israel and the international community to engage with all relevant Palestinian parties, including Hamas, to end this crisis. Uh, and to urge uh, the United States to engage all relevant parties in the international community to pursue a peace and just uh, resolution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and uh, almost immediately we were able to put together a, a strong rabbinic voice. We have ten rabbis who are calling for this fast. At present we have over 70 rabbis who have signed on. We have uh, over 700 people who have signed on to support the fast, and these are Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And that was something we felt very strongly, that this effort uh, cannot be um, uh, spearheaded by any one community. Uh, we need to reach out to create new coalitions and new relationships. And it's, it's a uh, nascent effort. It's just beginning, but we've been very, uh, we've been very, very encouraged by, for two things. One is the, the level of vitriol that it has inspired by many Jews uh, has been counteracted by a much greater uh, embracing of a larger interfaith coalition that's looking to engage this issue uh, in, in a much deeper way. Uh, the, I, I think it's almost time for me to stop, but I will just end with one thing. Uh, the, I, I think it's important to talk about the Goldstone Report, and we can talk more about that um, uh, during the conversation as well. Uh, the, Go the Goldstone Report, even though it's been fairly successfully quashed by any number of parties, what I feel was enormously important in keeping this issue alive. Uh, and I've often observed that in this day and age, uh, you know, in the 24-hour news cycle, when news stories only have a very, very brief shelf life, whatever else we can say about the Goldstone Report, it has kept the issue of, it put the issue of Gaza back on the radar screen of the media when it was virtually uh, absent after after the uh, after the war, uh, but it's also stayed on the it stayed on the media radar, and I have a great disappointment that uh, uh, its its findings are not being taken seriously by uh, by anyone really. <laughs> uh, but I think one thing that uh, that we can we can say is that it is it we need to uh, we can't let the findings, uh, gold, the Goldstone findings, simply become yesterday's news. Can I uh, ask you one question? Yes. Can you mm -hmm. explain what that report is? I'm sorry, the Goldstone report. Uh, Goldstone report was a uh, the report written by a mission of the United States Human Rights Council that was put together to investigate potential war crimes by Israel and uh, and, and Hamas during uh, during the uh, during the crisis. And there was a number of uh, uh, very, very troubling allegations that came out of that report, uh, uh, particularly about Israel's role in bombing civilian sites and bombing Gazan infrastructure, uh, uh, the use of white phosphorus. And uh, the final recommendations of the report were that, uh, that both Israel and Hamas put together independent, credible, and transparent uh, investigations of their own to investigate uh, these uh, these uh, alleged war crimes, and if not, uh, if they would not do it, it recommended handing it over to the International Criminal Court. And uh, Israel rejected it out of uh, both Israel and Hamas has rejected it out of hand. The United States uh, House of Representatives recent, uh, recently, about ten days ago, voted overwhelmingly. Uh, to uh, to not, uh, urge the United States not to endorse the report. Uh, what I found very interesting, and Tani Tzedek uh, sponsored a conference call with rabbis in which Richard Go Judge Richard Goldstone, who chaired the mission, uh, spoke to us. Uh, what I found was very interesting was that Goldstone uh, 
is a uh, professed Zionist. He's a, he's a Jewish man, a South African Jew, and a professed Zionist, and yet was willing to go really to the belly of the beast and investigate um, these these troubling uh, allegations and bring them to light. And he has been excoriated in the worst way in the Jewish community as a traitor, as an anti-Semite, as a self-hating Jew. And to me, it's not a perfect uh, report. It's a no report is. It's a it, it was put together uh, in enormously difficult circumstances. But to me, at least, he is a, a extremely honorable man who is trying to get to the root of what happened and uh, to hold those if there were crimes committed, which I believe there were, to hold those responsible accountable. And um, I'll just end by saying the Goldstone report, um, I think, in the Jewish community has caused. Uh, very deep discussion about what's going on in Gaza, and that's what we need to have. And I believe that although the so-called Jewish establishment that purports to speak for all Jews everywhere is still digging in their heels, uh, there is a growing grassroots effort in the Jewish community uh, to, as I said, as I said several times now, engage this issue in a different direction. Uh, the uh, the conversation around Goldstone just being the the latest example of that. So I'll end here. I'll just end again by saying I really uh, ver honor the fact that you invited me to speak. Um, I look forward to having conversation with you, whether you agree with anything I said or disagree or want to delve more deeply. Uh, I think the, um, the opportunity to have venues such as this to engage this issue together is really what we need to do. We need to do more of what we're doing right here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, um, my own. <clears throat> I'm used to uh, speak standing, so this is uh, something different for uh, for a priest. <laughs> uh, we we don't sit in church. Um, I want to um, to share with you a couple of things, actually, uh, three points. That's why I'm here today. What happened in Gaza is absolutely, as everybody agrees, it's outrage. It's uh, what happened there. It's uh, something against uh, the human principles, whatever they are. And uh, as a Christian, I want also to address the Christian community who are there because I don't know how many of you know that uh, uh, there is only 1% of Christians left in the entire Holy Land that uh, accounts for about 150,000 people uh, some cities uh, are totally empty of Christians some cities the Christians dwindled to a few families and some of the Christian community also suffering a lot and even more than many others. The unemployment in Bethlehem is 80%. The unemployment in Bethlehem is 80% among the Christian community because the people in Bethlehem uh, trade mostly is jewel boxes and, and, and uh, some souvenirs and stuff like that and there is less and less uh, tourism going over there. The people in Gaza, there is only less than 5,000. And the 5,000 uh, people in Gaza, even though we understand that they are from the upper community financially, uh, also suffered uh, a lot. The Christians in the Holy Land suffer both ways or have been used both ways uh, there is this uh, tension uh, or, or this uh, notion actually sometimes among people to think that the Israelis treat Christians better than Muslims and that thought in itself bring animosities between Christians and Muslims they think you know this Christian family has been treated better but that's not true. 
The reason there is only 150,000 Christians left is the fact that there was a conspiracy, in my opinion, between the West and Israel to drive those people out. And why is that? Because the Christians in the Holy Land own over 20% of the land. So it is easier to get rid of 150,000 or 300,000 or 400,000 and take their land than to get rid of 3 million. So actually the, the largest landowner, maybe this is a new for you, the largest landowner after the state of Israel is the Greek Orthodox Church in Palestine. Uh, they own more land than the Palestinian authorities. So for, for Israel right now, it is, uh, it is a mission, in my opinion, also to get rid of the 150,000. On the other hand, on the other side, we are always told, you know, that uh, uh, if uh, Hamas takes over, for example, the West Bank, you Christians are going to be finished. And, uh, and you are better off to, to be with, the, with the, what they call the moderates, you know, the, the PLO and, and all those people. In my opinion, I am never scared from a religious person. I am always scared from those who use religion. So if, uh, if Hamas is truly religious and they follow their Quran truly, then I will be more safe with them than anybody else. So I just want to make this point, actually to say that it is not true that we are better off with one group uh, rather than the other. We are, we will be, the, we will be, will be at probably the same. Uh, we also, the Christians uh, over there, uh, have a third problem especially the majority of the Christians, that even our church authorities are not Arabic. So you can imagine where we are going. So our church authority is not Arabic, it's foreign, actually Greeks. The, the, uh, the occupation and, and the other matters, which really makes, uh, makes life in that part of the world much, much difficult. There is a couple of myths around. Uh, and we would like to just straighten them out. One, uh, uh, people think that all Arabs are Muslims, and they are not. I am not. And many people th say also that uh, all Muslims are Arabs. Also, that is not true, because Pakistanis are not Arabs, and they are Muslims. So. So we have to differentiate, and, and we have also always to look at those people in the proper perspective. To the Christian community uh, who lived there and who left there, by the way, I am almost 60 years old. I am as old as the occupation. The occupation little bit two years older than me. You can imagine, for all those years, you know, we, we have been under this occupation of Israel. And life is not uh, fun under these occupations. I want to share with you just uh, a letter we received on time from the priest of Gaza, the priest of the, of the Catholic Church in Gaza. And he, uh, he introduces, he sends the letter, he says, From the Valley of Tears, from Gaza that is sinking in its blood, the blood that has strangled the joy in the hearts, of one and a half million inhabitants, I send you this message of faith and hope. But the message of love is imprisoned, choked in our throats as Christians. We do not venture to even say it to ourselves. The priests of the church today are raising hope as a banner so that God will have mercy on us and have compassion on us and keep a remnant for himself in Gaza so that the light of Christ that was lit by Deacon Philip, uh, this is Philip the Apostle, so those Christians, by Deacon Philip, at the establishment of the church, will not be extinguished by, but continue to shine in Gaza. I announce to you, this letter when it came, announce to you from my heart as the father and priest, the death of the daughter 
of school in Foley family, the dear Christine Wadiat Turk, the first Christian to die in the war. Christine was in the 10th grade in our school and she died this morning, Friday, January 2nd, 2009, as a result of fear and the cold. The windows in her house were open to protect children from glass fragments. So what, what, what they do, so they would not be injured by, by the glass, they sleep with these windows are open, you know, no heat. The windows in her home were open to protect the children from glass fragments and the missiles that pass above it. The bombing that her, hit her, house, her neighbor home caused her whole body to shake in horror. She could not bear all this, so she went to complain to her creator about her situation and request a home and a refuge where there is no crying, screaming, or wailing, but joy and happiness. So, those uh, who think that, uh, you know, these missiles can hit one group and leave the other, that is not true. What we need in Gaza today is uh, two things, actually. Uh, I'm not going to speak about what happened in Gaza. I'm sure all of us, I have never been in Gaza. I didn't, I didn't go to Gaza uh, lately. Uh, but what we want to, um, you could watch, you, you, I'm sure you did watch this on TV. What we need today is an immediate uh, work, uh, some, something to happen. First, to, to lift the siege. You know, after three years, those people are deprived from any resources. These homes which have been collapsed by the bombings still are not built. People still live in tents. And they are, you know, you, you watch the TV and you watch the news and you see those kids, those children living. I was watching something yesterday. I think they had rain in Gaza a couple of days ago. And, and they showed the children sleeping on the mud. This should not happen in the 21st century. So uh, we call, uh, and, and you know, this is humanitarian. The, 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 the really terrible thing Israel has done is that they do not even allow from the outside any, any help to come in. Like those uh, missions, you know, those uh, ships, and some of them were sinking. By the way, one of our Archbishop, Archbishop Kabuchi, was on one of them. The, the, the ship which was almost sank, it was hit and the, the Archbishop was on it. Uh, those people who came from all over the world tried to help. Doctors uh, also were uh, forbidden to enter. Uh, I'm sure you, you will follow this all you, uh, somewhere else. Last point I want to make, and this is why I'm here actually. The Gaza war have changed my outlook on the on the, uh, on the solution for the, for the Middle East crisis. I supported all along the two-state solution until the Gaza war. Now I don't. I am totally against the two-state solutions. I do not believe that it will work. It will never work as long as you have a state next door to you who can destroy you in a few days. What happened in Gaza, Israel proved it to the world that they can go to Gaza and destroy the infrastructure totally, within hours. So a two-state solution is a myth, uh, is not possible, because you cannot have a state where you are not in control. You cannot have a state if you don't have army to protect that state. What kind of a state they are going to give us if a state is going to be with no arms to protect yourself are you going to be sitting under, under the mercy of Israel of course not now what I believe it should happen I am I'm now uh, stating it to the whole world actually I, I spoke this before many times I am for a one state solution uh, that state should not be a Jewish state should not be a Muslim state should not be a Christian state it should be a state which all, you know, in other words, it should be uh, 
uh, a non-religious state. It should be like the United States of America, where people can run and live together. If we are able, three of us here, to sit on this table, I do not see why we cannot sit somewhere else and, and live together in peace. That land should be shared by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. They should live in peace, happiness. Uh, if it might be a, a wishful thinking, as some people might say, but uh, you will discover that is the only solution. As a matter of fact, I propose even to change the name of Palestine and Israel, and uh, not to not to give it, uh, but to call it the State of the Holy Land. Period. You know, and and State of the Holy Land, and and let's work on this word holy. You know, maybe people can live in that part of the state uh, as equal partners and, and, and uh, find, uh, find a peaceful life. Uh, my friends, again, I, 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 I say to you, this two-state solution is a myth. It is not going to happen. It will not happen. Israel also will not let it happen. And I'm sure even some Arab states don't want it to happen. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for coming here and listening to, uh, to these distinguished uh, speakers here on my right. Uh, first of all, uh, just one uh, correction here, because especially for the students who might read some of my uh, CD or my background and, and the Wikipedia there's, uh, you know, just to just to give you some corrections there because it's not everything written in Wikipedia is a, it's a fact and uh, some of that uh, uh, untruth to say the least that in the Wikipedia they said that uh, the IEP which is the Islamic Association for Palestine which I was the leader of it and I and the head of it, that was closed by the government because it's a front organization to Hamas. This is the furthest from the truth. Uh, the IEP never was closed by the government. We never been interviewed by the government. We never been visited by the FBI for any reason except in, in 2001 when the, you know, the tragedy happened, as you know. They came us to tell us, if you have any problems, just make sure you call us, because they were came to actually to protect us in the IEP instead of closing us down. But that's just for you to know that, and we're not front organization for Hamas or anybody, or the PLO. We are, actually, we were created in the IEP before even Hamas came to being. So all these slides you hear that for being, um, you know, apologist for this or that, and it's not true. So I wanted just to set the record straight, not that... I'm ashamed to be, you know, to belong to any of those groups in the, you know, in the Palestine, whether the PLO or the Hamas or any of these things. It's just a matter that's who I am. I'm an independent uh, activist, uh, Palestinian Muslim who believes in the rights of the people to live in Palestine and who believes in fighting oppression and believes in justice for all. Bismillah uh, ar-Rahman rahim in the name of God, the merciful, the compassion. First, it's very difficult really to speak after uh, two men of the cloth, like they say it, and you know, a rabbi and a minister, and here comes in, I don't even have a title, like an imam. You know? Maybe I'll still pick up that title. <laughs> so it would be easier for me, huh? Uh, just turn you know, what I'm trying to do here in the next uh, few minutes, actually, to try to make sense of what took place uh, you know, in Gaza a year ago. And that, of course, could take hours to explain everything, but I tried as much as possible with my uh, limited uh, abilities to try to sum it up in the 15 minutes and to make some sense so we can understand what did take place actually and why and so forth and maybe answer some of the questions too. Uh, I call it uh, Justice versus Oppression, which is that's the title of what I'm talking about here. The parties are involved, as you see it here, Gaza, Palestine, which is, I don't want to say Gaza, because people always say Gaza as if Gaza is not part of Palestine. We want to make sure we put that in our minds, that Gaza is part of Palestine. It's a very important part of Palestine, too. It's not just another country. Israel, of course, Arab and Islamic governments, there's the people, and Ramallah, Palestine, which is, again, Ramallah is not 
people as well as Ramallah, if Ramallah is a different country and a different state, Ramallah is part of Palestine, and of course America and Europe is part of, the, of this equation, and of course we are here, American Muslims and Arabs, and just and peace-loving people, they are part of this uh, equation. The Operation Castlet, as was named by the Israelis and by the Israeli destruction forces, uh, there are some facts and myths has to be understood. The fact that this is a naked aggression against the Palestinian people. It is not a war against Hamas, because that's the first thing that Israel says. This is a war against Hamas, and of course the media here being very much in, uh, you know, in bed with, with, uh, with Israel, and the Zionist movement here is very strong, for, has their influences in the media. They said, well, this is a war against Hamas, and people think that Hamas is a country somewhere. You know, and people just fighting. There's two countries, and, and many people actually, in the average American person asks me, where is Hamas? And then even somebody asked me one time when about Hezbollah. I says, what what is Hezbollah? Where, where is this city stands? Where is this city actually sits? Uh, this is a guy actually, chief of staff of congressman, not even just a, anybody, a chief of staff of congressman. Who I went to talk to him about the war in war in Lebanon. I was talked about Hezbollah. Says this fight. He says, where where is this Hezbollah city? You know. Yes, I don't know. And after that, I couldn't talk anymore. <laughs> so this, this, this is a fact. You know, this is not a war against Hamas. It's against Palestinian people. It's a war against the, you know, the, uh, the Palestinians and the Gaza people. No doubt about it. Uh, the tremendous loss of uh, innocent lives, as we know it, and just to remind ourselves, we should never forget. I mean, some people say, why we can't keep talking about those, you know, died and this is history. Well, if we should stop talking about our history is like I was asked once in, the, you know, in Washington. I said, why do you keep talking about the history of this? We will start from here. I said, okay, if the Zionists stop talking about Palestine as their land, because 5,000 years ago somebody said or claimed that it's their land, and I'll stop talking about Palestine as part of my land. Yeah, so there's you know, over 1,400 deaths, innocent people, most of them, and over 5,300 injured, as you know it. Many are those people died actually since then, many of those 5,300 people. The fact is that also 355 of those, children, those were killed were children, and over 1,000 were injured. That's all children we're talking about. Of those children injured, many were maimed permanently with loss of limbs, deafness, or blindness. In photos, most part, uh, those who have satellites and they watch maybe the Jazeera and others, uh, Arabic satellites, they can see these things more often than the average American in the Western world because they don't have access to these, this, to these pictures. And so it's, it's really heartbreaking when you look at those people and how they, you know, those kids actually, and they're talking, you know, and how they're living their lives. Facts also, the relative property damage done in 22 days, that's a fact also, was worse than the damage done by both world wars. You know, two wars we went, you know, worldwide wars that happened, that in 22 days Israel was able to destroy more properties and infrastructure than the two wars together. There was a fact also there was a systematic and deliberate attack on the schools. It was not by mistakes. I mean, deliberate attack, and this is what came out also the Goldstone report. When I, I did this actual presentation, of, uh, you know, uh, a couple of weeks later after the, uh, that which is about a year later almost, and he said that, that, that you know, this deliberate attack on mosques, hospitals, ambulances, and we know the UN uh, schools, and so forth and so on. There was that, these are crimes and possibly crimes against humanity, and this is proven now by the Goldstone uh, report that the rabbi uh, mentioned and talked about, and, without, you know, and as I said, came from somebody, that who you know, the professor as a Zionist, and he loves Israel, and he's actually on the board of the trustees of the Hebrew University uh, in Jerusalem. So that you know, but he could not hide the truth, and he did not did not want to hide the truth. He was an honorable man, and wanted to say what what he saw. Of course, there's you know, every war has goals. There's no war, war or any operation, military operation without goals. Just so they have some goals here. Some of the goals. There are some goals who are announced, and they talked about it, some they are not, usually, in any, in any war. They announced goals, actually, the change of the regime, which is the destruction of the resistance movement there, which is Hamas in particular, and the rest of the resistance movement, the Jihad, and uh, the PA, the Fatah, and all those people who are, you know, fighting their, the, uh, the occupation. That's the that was announced, and was declared as a goal. So to stop the rockets, that they were saying, you know, that's one of the goals, too, and stopping what's called 
you know, smuggling, which is the tunnels that actually they're saying they're smuggling weapons, only smuggling milk and, uh, you know, and cigarettes and uh, some food to the people to feed them there. Uh, the unannounced goal, which is that something that, of course, you don't read about, that the United, uh, they, they want to unite the Israeli people and keep the Palestinians divided. At that time, if you remember that there was a big talk between especially the Kadima and, uh, you know, the Labour and the Likud and all this, they were fighting and uh, Olmert was in trouble because of all of his, uh, you know, corruption that uh, he allegedly was doing. Yeah, so that there was a chaos going on, so there was some disunity in the Israeli community. And this is, actually, this is a pattern. When there's always a chaos, or there's some disunity, and there's disagreements, sharp disagreements in the, in the, in the Israeli community, the Jewish community in particular, the Jewish community at large, Israel, it's dead for the last 60 years, like uh, Father Dahda said, which is, him and I, we share the same year, we were born in the same year here, though I, he looks younger than me. Uh, <laughs> you're sweeter. Uh, so that, you know, this is, you know, they were talking about that, uh, you know, they wanted, always they go to war. And we see that even the Lebanon war, which is the, they called against Hezbollah, not against Lebanon, and, you know, again. And all these things actually that happens, that when there is a problem in Israel, the best way to, for them to exit the crisis is to go to war. And they, in 60 years, that they've done so many wars, even start, you know, hard to count them. In a very short period of time, six or seven wars, you know, in, in this, uh, actually the average is about every 10 years there is a war. Now, actually, they shorten the average that every two years they have a war. Because I think maybe the speed of the light or the speed of the civilization, I don't know. Uh, the, you know, to first of all, to legitimize the Abbas government, the Abbas government starts losing some sort of, uh, you know, support in, in, in Ramallah and the West Bank in particular. And they thought by doing this, they can destroy the regime, quote unquote, again, and bring the government of, uh, you know, of Abbas there. And I'm, I'm using the word government of Abbas, not Fatah, so because people sometimes, you know, there's, we have to distinguish between the two of them. Okay? There's the Abbas, which is different than Fatah and, and most of the things. So that, this way to, to give it some legitimacy because there, there is nobody willing to, to play the game like, like uh, Abbas and his government with, with the Israelis and the United States. Uh, to, of course, to extract as much as possible from the outgoing Bush administration. Then look at the timing there. They timed it against exactly when the Bush administration was just about to leave. You know, this way the Bush administration has no power. It's a lame duck, uh, you know, administration. There's nothing they can do. So they can do whatever they want to for a long time before even the other one comes in and takes uh, root. And that would be coming to put things together. It would be hard for them to control it. So that was really, you know, evilly, you know, uh, done. And, and the, the timing of it, I call it, you know. And, of course, this way to tie the hands of the incoming Obama administration to test the new American weapons. There's a lot of American weapons, actually, that are there. They were tested in Gaza and how much destructive they are. And some of them, actually, nobody talks about it. Some of it depleted uranium and some of it, of course, the phosphorus, which just came out. The, you know, weapons and the bombs there. Of course, to polish them almost because he was in trouble, again, he was in crisis, so he wants to do something so he can look good and he leaves with, you know, with a bang, like we say, you know. So he tried to do that. Of course, in every war, there is uh, losers and winners. Uh, there is this movement led by Hamas and, the, you know, and the other, the resistance proved without any doubt that it can win and it is the best way to liberation. And this is a probably came to them as as a surprise to the world, not just to Hamas, probably to Hamas was a surprise, probably was a surprise to Israel, and the world that, that will, will stand that much of destruction and that they will disappear over that. That did not work. And um, uh, the unprecedented support for the Palestinians is heartwarming all over the world. Millions of people, millions of people around the world, in Europe especially, you know, in the United States and, uh, you know, and everywhere in the Arab world that they came out in support of the Palestinian people and against the war. Most of the other governments, I said most of the other governments, not all of them, came in support, of course, of the uh, Palestinian people. Also, the winners that the outpouring uh, of the Arab and Muslim people's support for the resistance, that the, you know, the fighting abilities of the resistance was not much damaged as the military reports from the Israeli part of the point of view. Not, I'm not a military man, so I don't know what their abilities, but that's some of the things I read in Haaretz and Ma'ariv, the uh, newspaper, which are very big circulation in Israel. They will talk about these and, the, you know, these kind of things. After that, the support for 
the resistance also increased in both in Ramallah and Gaza. Uh, of course, the losers were the Israelis technically did not achieve any of their goals. They announced or unannounced. Except, of course, the killing and the destruction of the, you know, of the Gaza and many, the killing of many people. They did not destroy the resistance movement, did not change the regime, did not stop the firing of rockets, did not help the Abbas government. Actually, the Abbas government lost more and more, and we see now, if you follow this thing, that Abbas now is in big crisis personally and as leadership, and he doesn't know what to do. Now he doesn't want to run, now they want him to run. The guy is in big trouble. I don't wish this on anybody, actually. Did not help the, you know, uh, lost tremendous prestige, of course, in Israel, in the world, in the, here in the world. And, uh, and uh, we in the United States, we lost a lot of credibility, of course, with the world there. Uh, there's much division. Now there's more division in debate in Israeli society and the Jewish people at large. There's a strong possibility Israel's leaders will be tried for war crimes, which is as, that, as the Goldstone report says. The losers, of course, were the Abbas government, you know, did not live up to the expectation because the people they were thinking that they're leading the Palestinian people actually standing with the Palestinian people. Unfortunately, even they stifled any uh, demonstration or rallies in support of Gaza and Ramallah and the, uh, following in the, uh, the West Bank cities. And that made them because you know, that they were giving orders by the United States and Israel not to, you know, allow these kind of support because they don't want to show that there is support among them. And unfortunately, that's where he's losing most of, much of his, uh, you know, credibility, and he's not uh, doing well now. Lost support from the Fatah movement, of course, more and more Fatah people, do, you know, start uh, distancing themselves from you know, the Abbas government. They don't want to be part of them, and, uh, and they came, some of them, they came out, you know, and talked about it uh, loudly. Lost credibility most among Palestinians, of course. Lost support among most Arab governments. Lost support of the Arab and Muslim masses. Made itself more likely to be extorted by the Israelis in any future negotiations, which is that proves that. That now, that, you know, after this, because they don't have any power, they don't have the support of the people. Now the Israelis want, as we see in the Netanyahu, you know, government, they want more and more compromises from Abbas. They want to recognize it as a Jewish state. They want to be a state that Palestine, if it exists, that has to be divided the way it is, and cantons, and they don't have to have any borders that they could recognize. They don't have any control over their skies. They don't have any control over their water resources or any resources. They don't have any, anything that could call it, you know, state except the name. You know, that's, they want it, and that's why he can't do anything, and when he went, even he could not even think straight to support the, the Goldstone report, and he wanted to withdraw it, as you know it, and that came, came down on, on his head actually hard, because he made a very big you know, mistake. Even his advisors, they start scrambling for, for you know, things to say. Well, we, we, he made a mistake. The PM, they would try to distance themselves like Arakat and uh, Burdina and uh, Nabil Amr and many, many of them too. That's it. Just the losers, like I said, the Arab mothers, they lost also that because of them that they thought that would be uh, some of the special, like now they revived the, what's called the Watan al-Badil or the, you know, the other Palestine in Jordan, which is the Jordan considered part of the, you know, the moderate government. Now, King Abdullah there, that is, is, he had, if you need to, many times he had to go to Israel and the United States, many trips, just to make sure that's not going to happen, because uh, the Likud always, they never gave up that thing that Jordan is Palestine. And they want the Palestinians to have their state in the east side of the, the, the river. So that scared, the, of course, the government, which I don't blame them. Uh, we're yeah. right okay. I'm sorry. All right. I'll be, you know, I'll be quick here then. You know, the, of course, we, are, we lost a lot in American people. As, people, as you know, a lot of people, they are not allowed this here in the United States and spoke about it, that there's a big boycott, actually, to our products in the Arab world. It's not in, in, officially, it's not by the government like it used to be the boycott. There's the people actually went out and they're not buying Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore, they're not going to McDonald's, they're not doing any of these things that in the Arab world, which is very big, in Jordan and uh, Riyadh and uh, Saudi Arabia, we lost a lot economically. They're not buying our cars anymore, they're not doing any of these things. But of course, our government here would not say anything, because it's not official, they cannot fight it. They cannot say we can push those people to buy, hey, you should go buy Kentucky Fried Chicken, you should go to McDonald's, you cannot do that. So they have to, you know, but we're losing big economically, and this is part of what we are in the mess of today. A lot of people they don't realize that. I'm a certified financial planner, and I, my life is in, in finances and, and how things are the economy, how it works, and we say that. That's, thank that's, you. You know, that's the end of it from here, but that's, thank you for... <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs>
Thank you to the speakers. I really appreciate you for taking out uh, time out of your time and coming here and uh, uh, educating us about this event. What we're going to do, we only have a couple minutes. We're going to probably ask about two to three questions to the speakers, um, and uh, we'll go from there. So please raise your hand if you want to ask a question, and uh, we'll go ahead and choose the person, and we'll ask the question. Any questions? Okay, go ahead. That's what I'm. What I meant. Yes, uh, I am. I'm, my proposal, or at least what I believe, I'm sure others propose the same, that there should be a secular state, totally secular state, where uh, that's what I meant, like the United States. You know, where people can run for office. I mean, we do it here. You know, we are able to go and vote and and, and campaign and do uh, and so on. I am uh, one of those who do not believe that uh, Palestine should be labeled uh, Christian, Muslim, or Jewish or, or, or Jewish state. This is actually what does not work these days. So it has to be a secular state, and uh, it takes time, you know, for the people to get the idea. But I think probably at the end it's going to end up like that because. Uh, again, the, the two-state solution is, is not possible. Even if it happens, see, this is my point, even if it happens, even if they declare there is a state, and there is a state which does not have the means to survive, it cannot survive. So it might be a state for a year, two years, five years, or something, then it's going to collapse. So actually, uh, uh, I think the, I believe that the negotiations on the two-state solution should cease totally, and uh, and that's it. You know, I, I think I think uh, we have to wait and people, you know, uh, to to uh, to live in peace with each other and and so on. And now somebody might ask me what happens to to the West Bank and Gaza. That's 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 of course Israel will never accept. I'm assuming will never accept a one-state solution. It's not in their favor, probably, in the future, but, but what else can you do? Those people are not going anywhere. Uh, those people have ties to the land. I am number eight generation of priests in my own family. We have 400 years of priesthood in my house. So nobody can tell me that I am not from there. Jews cannot tell me that I am not a Palestinian. Neither Muslims can tell me I am not a Palestinian. We're all Palestinians, you know, and, and we have the right to live in peace in a secular state, in a secular state, totally secular state. Okay. Thank you, Father. Uh, second question from Mary. Does anybody else have a question? A student have a question? Okay, go ahead, Mary. My question actually is for the rabbi. I was curious, first of all, this is such a welcoming sight to see all of you here, but I was curious, you touched upon this briefly, but what was the reaction within your own temple when you began to sort of espouse your beliefs more? Did you lose people? Were, were, I know you said that a lot of people were supportive, but I'm also curious if actually within temple itself, the discussions have come up, what was the reaction? Okay, so the... Okay, so the question was, what was the reaction in his own temple and how uh, they felt about the situation in Gaza? Is that correct? Yes. Um, during the war, we hosted a uh, panel at, at, at my congregation. And uh, at that time, uh, we had different people. We had uh, an Israeli giving sort of a political analysis. We had uh, a, uh, a Palestinian giving a, an analysis of the situation. And, and rather than give another analysis, I, just re I decided to read a testimony from a Palestinian woman uh, who lives in Chicago but has a lot of family in Gaza. And it was a pretty gut-wrenching testimony and that more than anything I think probably well connected with what I had written and then uh, reading that publicly in my congregation there were about 150 people there really caused a great deal of upheaval and I would say it, it runs the spectrum I think everyone is um, I think there's a small group of people who agree with everything I say <laughs> very small uh, there's a small group of people who um, are completely implacable uh, in engaging this issue and then there's a large group of people I think the largest group are people who uh, 
are just struggling, just really. And I'm very blessed that I'm in a congregation that is, uh, by and large, willing to engage in that struggle. Um, I think there were many people who felt that, uh, as their rabbi, it was difficult for them to see me as their rabbi struggling personally in such a public way, and that uh, they want. I think many people want me to help them struggle where they are. And, but for me, the issue is that. In addition to being the rabbi for all of my congregants, I also see a part of my job is to bear witness to uh, for justice and against oppression in the world, whether it's being caused by my people or anybody. And I, I reached a point where I just couldn't, I had to be true to my own truth. So uh, since that time, it's been very, very difficult. Um, uh, the fact that I'm still employed there and will continue to be, I think, says a great deal about my congregation. I think... In most congregations around the Jewish synagogues around the country, I would have been tossed out on my rear end. Uh, and so I, I think it speaks well of my congregation that whether wherever they fall on this issue, they uh, trust me enough and are willing to engage in this issue enough to go to uncomfortable places. We recently had a listening session where 120 people uh, showed up on a Sunday afternoon. They gave up a Sunday afternoon simply to talk and to listen to one another about this issue. Um, which is, you know, for 120 people to give up a Sunday afternoon to talk about the most uncomfortable subject for Jews to talk about, I think, says a great deal about my congregation. But um, there, are, as I said before, there are many. I have many rabbinic colleagues in congregations who want to be able to say these kinds of things, but simply can't because they fear for their jobs. Thank you. We have just one last. If you guys have one more question, and that will conclude it. Yes. The question is, do you, uh, the panelists, agree to the legitimate existence of the area, uh, of the State of Israel, to the panelists? I guess uh, everybody knows that Israel exists. I mean, it doesn't look for... My, you know, for anyone to that is exist uh, there, it's there. Let me ask what he's... What, can you uh, repeat that question again, please? As it exists now? For me, as, as, like I said, Israel exists. When we have to have a mutual existence, when the Israelis decide to say that the Palestinian people exist and they have the right to live there, without any qualifications, like they do now, then we can talk about that. But to, why would you ask a Palestinian, for, for me I'm talking about, to you know, recognize the state of Israel as a legitimate state, they have the right to exist there and everything like that, without the Israelis even acknowledging for the poor, up to this moment, after 60 years, even as a matter of fact, within the last 60 years, they, uh, Meir, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Golda Meir, said these, uh, the Palestinian people don't exist. We are just... Uh, and the other one, uh, I think, was uh, Shamir, I think. He said, though, the Palestinian people are grasshoppers and we could crush them. And, and when the time that thing stops, then I think there would be a legitimate question to ask that whether we should, as Palestinians, in my opinion, to say that Israel has the right to live there or not, as an existing or whatever the, that uh, term means. But as but it exists, it exists. Nobody can deny it does not exist. It's there. I mean, you can't say that it does not exist. Father? Uh, I think the position I'm taking answers for itself. You know, I do not believe there should be uh, a state which is run by one people. I think it should be a state for everybody. Uh, whatever you call it does not matter. But uh, at this point, I am, uh, I am advocating the... Um, this, the one state solution for Jews, Muslims, and Arabs, uh, secular state. I have trouble with the way that question is phrased simply because I don't understand what it means for a nation to have the right to exist. I think in the history of nationalisms, I think might makes right. I think that's what gives us any state the right to exist. They exist because they are powerful enough to create a state and defend it from enemies and have a, and, uh, um, to be able to, uh, on the sheer 
power of their own power uh, claim that right. So for me, the issue is not does a state have the right to exist. I, for me, the question is how is it going to exist? Uh, and uh, you know, the way you said it was the right to, as a legitimate state as it is now. If 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 I'm asking myself how it's going to exist, I don't think it's going to exist the way it exists. It can't exist the way it exists now. Uh, to uh, militarily occupy. Uh, a great deal of this territory and to have two sets of laws, military law, oppressive military law for one people and civilian law for another people. Uh, and inside the state of Israel to have uh, uh, of also a very unequal situation uh, where there's no constitution, where there's no uh, legal recourse for non-Jewish citizens of the state, uh, where Jews all over the world can have the right to be a citizen simply by setting foot in that land, but uh, uh, the people who are, have a deep history, indigenous history in that land cannot, um, I don't think that is a sustainable situation. I think it has to change. Um, so for me, the question is, how is this state going to exist? And as an American, I believe in things like democracy, like civil rights, like human rights, like justice, like equality. And if uh, this state or any other state can exist uh, with uh, those values as sacrosanct, then uh, I support that. And if not, then I don't. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, can I, uh, I want to add just one little comment uh, to what the rabbi said. Uh, do you know that people who live 8,000 miles away, let's say in the United States, you can go to Bethlehem for Christmas to celebrate Christmas, and you, are in, you can go to, to the city, to the church in Bethlehem where Christ was born. But the people of Ramallah, who are only 10 kilometers away cannot go to Bethlehem to the same church and uh, that's why you know I, uh, I advocate uh, the, the one state solution uh, with, uh, with as the rabbi have mentioned at the end you know people to live in freedom in peace with each other you know this is, this is the only way that area can survive otherwise we are going to keep having the violence after violence and after violence and everybody has to change their vocabulary you know the vocabulary of that land is terrible right now you know the side speaks about Jewish state the side speaks about uh, uh, Muslim states this one you know the minute you, you radicalize this you know and, and you only want to label it for certain people what happened to the others you are telling the others you have no place here Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for attending. I would like to thank the panelists uh, for coming today. I really, really appreciate it. And I would also like to thank Moraine Valley for hosting this and helping us with this. I'd like to thank Student Life and Troy for this. I really appreciate it. And I would also like uh, to say we have uh, a small gift for each of you uh, for attending this. Thank you so much. Is this Microsoft? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.